0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. We interview philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas, including ethics, philosophy of mind, metaphysics and epistemology, social and political philosophy, and others, Today's interview is with Jennifer McMahon, Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Adelaide, South Australia. Art and ethics are linked philosophically by the fact that they both fall under value theory, and some aestheticians, notably Barris Gaut, have argued for a direct connection between aesthetic and moral values in that the moral values that an artwork may embody can raise or lower its aesthetic value. In Art and Ethics in a Material World, Kant's Pragmatist Legacy, which is just out from Routledge, McMahon argues that aesthetic and moral judgments are intrinsically linked by the fact that they contain a common element of community-calibrated subjective responses, and that as a result, by reflecting on art, we also exercise this element of moral judgment. McMahon draws on Kant, pragmatist philosophers such as John Dewey, contemporary philosophers of mind such as Susanna Siegel, and interviews with contemporary artists including Olafur Eliasson and Dora Salcedo to argue for and illustrate her view. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Jennifer McMahon.
1: Hi, Carrie. Hi,
0: welcome to New Books in Philosophy.
1: Uh, Thank you. Um, I'm really pleased to be here.
0: Well, it's it's a very interesting book, um, art and ethics in a material world, um, and um, I thought because it's such a uh, there are so many different themes going on in the book that are tied together in a very interesting way. I wanted to to sort of start uh, by giving what I consider to be a pretty crude characterization um, of the book as a whole, in that it's it's you're you're trying to link aesthetic and ethical judgments um, by positing a common element of what you call community calibrated subjective responses. And then, you know, by reflecting on art, um, we in effect exercise this aspect of our moral judgment. Um, Could you maybe to start us off, explain sort of simply before we get into the details, what the core thesis of the book is in your terms um, and what problem uh or 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 question um you're attempting to answer in the book
1: okay, yeah, thanks Carrie. Um, the theory of art developed in the book is post kantian in that it explains how art engages our subjectivity but in such a way that it structures. Our subjectivity, ideally, um, art provides an opportunity to structure our feeling responses relative to particular objects into a communicable form. Okay, so um, by communicable I mean compatible with our community. Now, this is not uh, this is a thesis you found you will have found through various other uh, writing. Uh, people have interpreted Aristotle, for example, his uh, Poetics in relation to his Ethics. Um, to come up with something like this, the fact that poetry is an opportunity to calibrate our responses to those of our peers. Uh, Greg Curry has a similar thesis about literature, uh, the role of literature and so on. Um, and so the the idea I'm taking, and I take it really, I, I see it, but I'm taking it from Kant's critique of judgment in relation to his other work, uh, to his body of work, um, a similar thesis. So art brings our private feelings into the public domain and in so doing calibrate some with those of our peers. Now, this emphasis on public feeling, if you like, um, or or in Kant's terms it's an a priori universality, that's the formalist aspect of my account. Now, there's an intentionalism also to the degree that we need to engage with artistic intention as evidenced in the work to experience the work. However, the emphasis of the account is on the way aesthetic judgment is concerned with elements of communication, those elements that are not captured by literal or discursive language, and this is what art is ultimately about. My account does not focus on the artist as celebrity. There's no fetish of the individual, and so on, um, as you might get with some forms of intentionalism or expression theory. So, um, so you know, I suppose I provide the structure, the structure in my in my first book. To understand how aspects of intentionalism are compatible with Kant's kind of formalism, but this book is is focusing on Kant's formalism to show that actually a conception of community falls out of it. Um, so, so I mean, there's a lot more I could I could say, but well, we we will. That's <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, but also, too, I just want to say the way the book is introduced, uh-huh. um, because there's quite a few. I mean, I didn't want to lose artists or art theorists, and I didn't want to lose moral philosophers and philosopher and, and aestheticians. I really, you know, I think it would be great if we could get a conversation between those groups. So I'm trying to develop a way of talking in this book where these people will be able to be engaged. Now it's very it's very heavily philosophical, of course. But so what I do in the introduction is that I introduce key terms, but I bring people into the problem and that is the problem of um you know the way we conduct ourselves um in responding to artworks when there are differences of opinion particularly differences of judgment um on issues that we hold really dear to ourselves and so i bring people into that problem in the first chapter so that's my way of an introduction so it's you know, it's not your classic way of introducing a philosophical book. It's not the way you would teach your graduate students to write their PhD theses, you know, for examination. But it's it's by the end of the first chapter, I'm hoping that people have got the, the key terms of reference and they've got the problem because they're already engaged in the problem. Um, and so that was the approach I took.
0: Um, okay. So this, um, as you just mentioned, you're you're sort of complementing a, a prior book. Um uh, maybe you could say before we get into the details of of the chapters, um, you can say something about um, about yourself and and how you came to this this topic and and to the writing of this particular book and 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 also because throughout the book you uh, you illustrate your theses with particular uh, contemporary artists you know Olafur Eliasson and Doris Salcedo and, and and others you know throughout and you you provide illustrations. Um, Maybe you could say a word about your own background and then your connection with these with these particular artists.
1: Yeah, okay, thanks. i My first degree was actually in fine art painting, and there are a number of problems that came out of studio practice that um, stayed with me. I mean that's my experience of doing that degree was and working in the studio um, was just an experience of frustration on the one hand. But also intrigue in the way things things were conducted. So, for example, at the time this was—I'm talking about the mid 1970s. So this is going back a long way, I suppose. Um, but I was at a, a rather um, you know, a key art art institute in Melbourne at the time, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. So it was actually quite a, a good place to study um, art. But anyway, the, the the approach at the time from the students was that it's all subjective. It's all and subjectivity was interpreted to mean whimsical, arbit- arbitrary, personal preference, and so on and so forth. But it seemed to me that the way we were conducting our studies was anything but s- assuming that it was subjective. Mm-hmm. So that we were being critiqued the whole time, um, and and this really con- th- this really interested me because it seemed to me that what we were being taught was to uh, um, work within particular conventions and then somehow internalize those conventions so that we restated it through our own kinds of experiences. Yeah. And so this interface between creativity and convention really intrigued me. And it was hard to get conversations going at the time about convention because convention was a dirty word. Yeah. So yeah. anyone thought that if you said your work was conventional, that was insulting. But, of course, it had to be conventional because otherwise what was the basis of us talking about what we, you know, the, the sort of critiques um, that you were given? You know, somebody would come up and say things like, the texture is dull and uninteresting. All the figures um, are, are disconnected from the picture plane or the, the choice of the, the palette, moniker and palette, is not justified in the effect that it's having. I mean, these are, these were sort of statements and critiques that you were given that were taken as just given. Mm. And it was just intriguing to me, the whole language and where it was coming from and and on what basis we were, because we were being judged all the time. And in those days... You, were ju- you had an opportunity to talk about your work, but you weren't judged on that. In those days, it was the work had to speak for itself because it was, there was a formalism, and an old-fashioned sort of formalism whereby if you did speak, need to speak about your work, it meant that what you said was part of the work, so therefore the actual artwork was unfinished. Um, it needed your, your words, so so it was a unified sort of whole. Um, that that kind of attitude now has shifted. They've moved more into something that's more compatible with an expression theory in the way they teach art in art schools. But anyway, these problems, okay, stayed with me and they were never answered um, from my art school experience and eventually I found myself, uh, found my way into philosophy and I found that I could read people who were actually interested in the same kinds of things um, across the board and that that was a revelation to me and that's really how I came into philosophy and those things have concerned me ever since um, and it has always struck me that, Going to art school is a very, very worthwhile experience because, but it teaches you things that, as an art student, it's very hard to articulate. And I needed to study philosophy for a number of years in order to start articulating really carefully what the problems were um, that intrigued me. Um, and that's what I'm hammering away on. I'm still hammering away on that, actually. <laughs> well, this um, that
0: that that contrast between you know this idea of sort of creating things and then um and then yet at the same time being critiqued. I mean that's always a, a very interesting tension in in aesthetics and, and in art of, of how you get sort of the um the the intersubjective or in some sense objective critique going uh for something that is typically seen as very, very subjective, much more so than Than moral judgment, you know, the moral judgment, relatively speaking, has a much stronger footing in 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 any claim to being objective, as opposed to art, which is often, you know, it's just a matter of it's just a matter of taste. And clearly, your your experience as uh, as an artist in an art school said, well, on the one hand, no, it's not. (laughs) Um, So the interest. So let me just to get to chapter the the very first chapter um where you draw the 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 link that you do between uh, what you call aesthetic reflective judgment and moral judgment um you you know unite them with this sort of shared subjective element um you distinguish them you know say in the moral case it's it's unconscious and it somehow you know directly or inevitably motivates action um or necessarily motivates action. Um, whereas in aesthetics, uh, it's it's consciously reflected upon, but it doesn't have any motivational force. Um, but this same sort of element, which you, you in which you include, our uh, subjective feelings, images, configurations, and constructs. Um, uh, this common element gets calibrated, as you put it. Um, through the interaction through the 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 critical interaction between other people you know looking at artworks um and discussing them with us um so could you could you explain that view
1: okay the the phrase i use feelings images configurations and constructs and i use that phrase quite a bit yeah uh, and it's a it's meant to be a, a sort of an open slightly messy kind of phrase so you know i've avoided using things like Um, internal reason or state given reasons, um, or, um, well, I mean, that the, the feelings, images, configurations, and constructs are that element that, uh, that is covered by Kant's notion of the indeterminate construct once it's been calibrated with other people within our community. So the feelings, images, configurations, and constructs refer to the attitudinal um, aspect of our concept. So the way, so the idea is that the way we conceive something influences our attitude towards it and how we act towards it. Most of the time, those things are not transparent to us. Um, we're not aware of those things unless we unless we come to some sort of problem where we suddenly become aware of it. So, for example, we might move into another culture or another subculture, and suddenly we realise the way we're using terms or the attitudes. That we have towards those terms become apparent to us, and we 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 realise that the person we're speaking to doesn't have the same attitude, and so that communication is somewhat thwarted. Um, artworks, really, uh, the way we engage with artworks, it's all about that that particular content, that that attitude, those attitudes. Um, so artists typically will create things where. Just, Different feelings will come together in unusual ways, and so we don't really have a, a label for it as such. And that that really is where what stimulates that kind of uh, reflection, that sort of thinking, trying to bring the thing together. Um, now, it's really so. So that's really the, the point of the the feelings, images, configurations, and constructs phrase that I use. And that's the idea of reflective content. Um, So the artist is drawing our attention to the attitudes that we take for granted, I suppose. So it's quite a simple, I I suppose, idea. Um, And the reason I'm putting it in the way that I do is so that then I can make sense of um, various uh, ideas in Kant and link it to my idea of what I think the idea of community that falls out of it. Um, well, this
0: is—I mean, this this sort of raises the 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 question. Well, you you discuss uh, the relation of this idea to um, census communis, yeah. Um, so maybe you could maybe you could be tell us about that.
1: Uh, okay, so the census communis for Kant, he he describes it as the idea that um, in judging we take into consideration what we consider the judgment of others, so. Or, or, Cognition in general. Um, and in the case of aesthetic judgment, we're taking into consideration presumably what we take others would feel about uh, particular objects. So it's always a comparative uh, thing. And of course, our notion of what other people will feel will depend on our background, will depend on our background experience and so on. And that's going to be dependent on the communities um, of which we are a part so the in the census the the idea of the census communis is what grounds um aesthetic judgment that's that's the intersubjectivity or you might you might say in a sense the uh, the objectivity of aesthetic judgment mm-hmm.
0: um, well one of the one of the questions that i had um was how how within your view do you do you explain this sort of the difference i mean speaking of the the objectivity or the objective aspect of aesthetic versus moral judgment i mean you know as i mentioned before i mean for many people the one the aesthetic one is is just a matter of taste and and trying and and you know attempts to ground um uh that sense uh, the any sense in which aesthetic judgments are objective. Um, you know, for, for a lot of people, that's, that's very deeply problematic. Whereas in the moral realm, it's not, it, it's also problematic, but not nearly as badly. Um, and so within your view, how do you, how do you explain the difference between those two types of judgments?
1: In the, uh, you see in the aesthetic case that's where things are in progress that's where concepts are in in the in the state of being formed rather than formed so it's sort of around the edges and boundaries of what we take to be what we take to be the given the concepts that we're confident of and that we use and the and the values and so on that we have so um, so the the aesthetic um that's why, you know, aesthetic judgment is so interesting because it gives us a, an opportunity to view the way these things operate in a way that's relatively uh, safe, if you like. I mean, in the moral case, it's much more, um, you know, we have a lot greater investment on the outcomes because it's going to impact upon our livelihoods and others often, you know, moral judgments, right. uh, whereas in the aesthetic case, it's not. It's not. You know. It's reflective. We have an opportunity to think about these things. Um, look, going back to to the idea of the census communists. You know, just to sort of draw this out. You know, I've so, been so embedded in this thinking for so long um, that I sort of I'm s- sort of skip over some of these questions too quickly. Um, with the census communists, I have in mind. You know, one example, one way of putting it, setting this out, I suppose, is. Um, the idea of the Habermas has about the structure of language and the fact that within the very structure of language there are certain principles that structure communication and principles like consensus and correctness. So these things are part of the dynamics of communication. So they are priori principles, if you like. They are priori in the sense that you know, if you don't reach consensus or if you don't get things right, it doesn't mean those principles are any less in operation. Those are the principles, actually, that guide, um, you know, the, the census communists, the, the aesthetic, the way we engage in aesthetic disagreements. Um, so that's the, that's the sort of the objective basis to it, and it's within the very structure of language. Um, and the whole thesis is, you know, it's a sort of a pragmatist account where our ways, our way of looking at the world, is is driven by our human interests. You know, under adaptive pressures, having developed as languages developed in the same way, um, and within the constraints of communities um, communicating with each other under those constraints. Um, so the aesthetic is so. This is this is the way. I mean, the the aesthetic links the formalism, the formalist account, uh, links to the moral, the idea, the the idea of moral judgment, in the way it is a matter of. Subjectivity being honed, honed to the public arena, so that the very concepts we have, in order to understand our inner selves, are concepts we've inherited through our community, and so we carve up experience according to these these uh, units, these these ideas, these concepts. Um, we structure experience through those concepts, and aesthetic judgment is a, is you know reveals to us that very process that that's happening when we're when we're. In the realm of um, exercising um, moral judgment, um, we are using usually um, concepts that we're fairly confident of in, in their communicative capacity. In the aesthetic realm, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. So, in the aesthetic realm, we're, we're really, it's really in process at a very rudimentary level.
0: So well, let me let me just um you you have an example towards the beginning of the book. I think it's I think it's chapter one, um, uh with some photographs by Bill Henson that were exhibited in Sydney in, in two thousand eight. Um and they were taken to be um offensive by the public. Um at least um I, I'm not um I don't have any sort of separate um take on that particular exhibit, but um as you describe it they they seduced the public into taking an attitude towards prepubescent girls that sexualized and objectified them um and then um interestingly i mean you you uh you went to see some of his work later um and he had a new show in 2012 um that suggested that you know this this uh, you know sexualization of 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 uh, pre pubescent girls was was not his original intent um and that somehow between these two shows the what he, you call the communicability um of his art was 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 sharpened um, so I thought that was a very good illustration of you know the relationship between the artist and the these sort of inchoate ideas that are being Tested, tried out—you know—in in the artistic arena, and then the community uh, responding to those, and then the artist responding in turn to the community. Um, so may- maybe you could um, kind of go a bit more into that example um, and um, how it illustrates the the this aspect of of the commun- increasing communicability of the concepts that are used to judge art um, and then the the community and the relationship with the, with the community standards.
1: Yeah. Well, the only way the artist has to respond to feedback, criticisms and so on is in the next body of work they create. Now, whether or not Henson was directly responding to that aspect uh, of the uh, response to his work, who's to say but, Making sense of his work, you make sense of his work by looking at the whole body, his whole body of work, what he's done before, what he does after. And it, sem- it seemed to me that the aspect of those works that people were reject- were responding to may well have not have been what he intended. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you only judge that by looking at, in you know, a subsequent work. But what they were objecting to—I mean, that—that that was really interesting and important that they did object. I mean, that's—that's that's what makes art so interesting. Um, sometimes the professionals will. Sometimes some people in the in the art world, some of the professionals, want to set aside those sorts of criticisms because they think, "Oh, those people don't know what they're talking about." Um, but that—that's a really um, a, not a helpful attitude to take. It's like treating art as though it really is a pretty little object to sit in a corner. Um, those people need to have a voice and then other people respond by perhaps saying, well, actually there's another way of perceiving these works, and then they need to use metaphor, analogy, prior example, and so on and so forth, to get them to perceive the work the way they're perceiving it. And if they don't succeed, then perhaps they're perhaps they're on the wrong track. Um, and this will just, you know, we just have to wait for history to see how it all pans out. But this interaction is really important. Um it, it to, to, you know, You don't want to trivialise art by saying that, oh, you know, all of those concerns are irrelevant. No, no, of course they're not irrelevant. Of course, art shows to us. I mean, it exhibits an attitude that the artist is taking towards their subject, their topic. Of course, as a human artefact, of course we respond to it in that way. Um, And that, you know, that's one of the really you know interesting things. I mean, that is the interesting thing about art, after all. Um, well, one of one of I mean,
0: some would a lot of artists, in fact, think of the role of the artist um, in the community as one of of confronting their community um, and 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 not making it comfortable. And and um, you're just sort of being uh, uh, being a, a gadfly or, or, or jarring the conventional values. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. So I, how, I, how so do you
0: respond to that sort of, you know, very common sort of attitude, at least among among artists?
1: Well, you know, I think that's right. Um, you know, we could, we could refer back to John Stuart Mill in on Liberty where he talks about the importance of having eccentrics in the community by which he means, you know, create, creative people because he thinks and he was critical of his own culture at the, that particular time that people are so busy trying to be obedient that the belief, the so-called beliefs they have are so buried in their minds they become dead Uh, they just pay lip service to them, but they don't live by them. And why it's important to have eccentrics in the community is because they tend to be passionate people and they do things that challenge um, what we believe, which we'd forgotten we believed. And so it requires people then to come up with reasons as to why they believe those things. And sometimes the reasons won't be very good and perhaps then they they, um, change to some extent or sometimes that they just strengthen their their convictions, but at least it brings the beliefs into the foreground and makes them, brings them alive again. Um, and, uh, you know, he so he talks about the eccentric, the, the individual in that way, but, of course, he says that this is the, um, what he's interested in is the good of the community, so it's not a, a good in itself. And really this is the role of the artist uh, to do this for us. Um, it doesn't have to be, they don't have to be, to way out often it could be just clarifying something in quite intricate subtle ways but it's very clear you know it clarifies things for us or, or awakens us you know it stimulates our thoughts and emotions and feelings keeps culture on the move you know mm-hmm. um keeps the horizons open um that that's what that's what's going on there i think um so the artist's who challenges in interesting ways—I mean, if they're not doing it in interesting ways, or if they're doing it in ways that make us rather cynical about their motivations, then they're not going to have the same impact. But if they do it in interesting ways, then then I think that's you know that's a really important role that they play in the community. Well,
0: speaking of community, one of the one of the questions um, that I that I also had was um, how you define community. I mean, um, you know, who is the, who yeah, is yeah, the yeah. artist's community I mean there's always the the sort of the professional community, the art world right um yep. uh, so what is the the community or are there various communities are they embedded in each other how how are what are these communities
1: well, the way um you know I'm really interested in the concept of community and by the end of the book, I'm talking about community as being and I talk about this too earlier in the book in chapter five, but also by the end of the book that community is not defined by a shared system of value it's defined by a way of communicating, and that if we get the way you know the, the conditions of communication right, then the rest is just going to fall out of that and and we'll have the basis of community um, and that's very of course uh, you know you'll find. You will find the basis of that idea in John Dewey, in Habermas, in, in a number of people, um, which I think also is very Kantian. Um, but anyway, we can get onto that later if you like. Um, so then, in the book, uh, my idea of community always, of course, the community is going to be the community that you're involved with, and then then within that community, there are various subcommunities that you're aware that you move within. And within the various sub-communities you move within, you're sometimes aware of the fact that you change your method of communication within those communities in order to be understood um, in the way that you want to be understood. So it really is all about modes of communication. That's what defines the various uh, communities. And that's that's really, uh, to, to a large extent, what I'm exploring in this book but I get to a point at the end of the book where I can say this kind of thing, and then I explore it more more directly in chapter five. But that's sort of where I want to go from here um, to look at that more sort of head on. But in this book, I'm sort of s- still sort of setting it all up in okay. some respects.
0: Yeah, because you don't you don't I at least don't I don't recall that you you talk about the artist in relation to the art world, which is its own its own sort of community. Um, Rather, they, there's, it, it seems like we're talking about the, the community, the public at large, at least within a given linguistic community, which, yeah, is, a the, far, which the, is a far broader right, um, yeah. community.
1: The, the, the art world, it, of course, is a very interesting um, c- construct, and there's lots of stuff written on that. And Catherine Abel has just written a paper recently summarizing the various types of institutional theory. Um, it's... it's uh, you know, it's very interesting. Um it, I, I tend to think about um, the institutional theories of art as sociological theories rather than, um, well, rather than ontological. Well, I suppose ontological to a certain extent, but they're certainly not definitions of art or anything like that. Um, and to some extent, you know, the institutional theory, the various aspects of it, explain the way conventions take hold. Uh So, you know, there are... They're really interesting um, theories to to engage with. But I suppose my interest in in that is in the way that it does demonstrate certain certain things about community at large, the way conventions and norms and values take hold, the way they're communicated and the way we then assume them as a baseline in order to be able to communicate in any fine-tuned way with each other
0: so um this this calibration process I mean use the term honing, calibrating um, modeling sometimes i'm not i 'm not sure if they're all the same um, uh, so maybe you could say something i mean in chapter three you you uh, you talk about cultivating feeling um, uh-huh. and that cultivating a moral outlook is is cultivating feeling um, uh and you also have this idea of of inter of of calibrating or honing uh, our feelings you know in an in an intersubjective manner. Um, mm-hmm. So could you could you say something about this 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 process of modeling of you know cultivating a moral outlook modeling uh our um feelings constructs and so on.
1: Yeah. I start using the term modeling very early on in the book. Um and each time I use it throughout the first chapter and second and third chapter, I add more to, to what I mean by it. And then when, by the time I get to the chapter on genius, I'm sort of going into it in a more um head-on way. It's derived from Kant's critique of judgment. It's the idea that um it's the idea that you recognize um exemplary models and You don't copy those models. You recognise something about them in terms of perhaps we could say certain principles. And so then you find those principles within your own representations and then you uh, communicate those principles through behaviour or through, you know, if it's talking about art, through through art objects. Um, So the idea is that you recognise the principles but you don't take them on you don't, it's not like taking them on authority or deferring to them. You have to actually find them within your own representations. And in finding them within your own representations, they're informing your subjectivity, if you like. So there's a motivational endorsement, you know, motivational aspect you're endorsing it, um, endorsing them. You're finding them within your own representations and then it informs your behaviour or the art that you then go on to make. So in Kant's thesis, that's his, that's his explanation of genius. And so it's like a process. But it's, you know, the term is used and it's used actually um, in a few people in this way. It covers a rational process that can't be explained in terms of discursive logic, in terms of um, direct, explicit inference. Yet it's rational nonetheless. And what Kant does is refer to it as genius. That's his model and then i I use that term modeling" then to talk about also the moral realm the way the way that the way these sorts of feelings ideas you know feelings images, configurations, and constructs um the way these develop in in relation to what's going on around us within the community um and then you know what one actually recognizes as an exemplary model will have a lot to do with. Trial and error, because you know you internalize the principles, you come up with something, and then you you know in the in the term in terms of behavior, you're knocking up against reality all the time. Sometimes things that you've internalized just don't work out. You you have to revise, and in the art world, sometimes you have to revise when people's response to the thing that you made is just so off what you thought you were doing, mm-hmm. um, and then you respond. Um, so that's the idea of of modeling um, that I use and develop throughout the book.
0: Um, One of the things I'm not sure I might have asked this uh, earlier, but one of the things that occurred to me as, as I read was, um, was Kendall Walton's, you know, famous uh, categories of art um, and, and how, you know, how we judge, right. The aesthetic value of a particular work depends in a in a sense that seems to me very very close to yours, um, depends on the, the the categories in which we uh, in which we place the work, and and that those categories, of course, are are historical and community based. Um, um, how how do you see your your thesis as related to to Walton's?
1: Um, I think Walton's thesis is really helpful uh, in the way he articulates the possibility of aesthetic realism, so the view that there is a correct interpretation. Um, In an a priori sense, that's absolutely true. I mean, when we're trying to interpret a work, we are acting as though we think there's a correct interpretation somewhere there. Um, um, Also, Philip Pettit's paper, The Possibility of Aesthetic Realism, seems to me to be... Uh, uh, he, he doesn't actually reference well, but it seems to me that uh, they're they're on the same page. The way Philip Pettit talks about them is discernible variations and, you know, that depending on your terms of reference, that will depend on how you configure something. Um, and the constraints he puts, he pins them to holism and uh, humanism and humanism is the idea that, it, that you consider what the artist could have meant and um holism is just the you, you know, coming up with something that's coherent and unified relative to what the artist could have meant and, and so on and so forth. Walton, of course, goes into, well, actually Petty goes into a lot of detail, but in a different way. He's got a he his structuralism is really to the fore. Um but both of these accounts, and, and Walton's account, yeah, it's it's really interesting. If I if I wanted to talk about the possibility if I was putting it in those terms, I was talking about the possibility of aesthetic realism, I would always be going back to Walton's. Terms and Pettit's terms. How it's similar to mine, um, I suppose I make my commitment, my my epistemological uh, commitments more, perhaps more obvious, or maybe not. Um, I'm I'm dependent on a theory of meaning, uh, a theory of language. I'm using that throughout the book, Um, so I'm trying to locate my position within philosophy, perhaps. Uh, more broadly um, because I think that um, a lot of uh, philosophy work in the philosophy of art and philosophical aesthetics seems to be sort of in some little sort of pocket of, of its own, um, sometimes, not always, and that I think that we should have more communication between the, the various uh, areas of philosophy because there's so much overlap but the language and the terminology develops along quite independent lines. And so then we often start to talk to each other. You know, somebody in ethics can be talking to somebody in aesthetics, and they they think they're talking about different things, but in fact they're not. They're just the, de- the terminology is developed along such sort of separate lines. So in my book, I keep resisting um, to as much, you know to be trying to communicate with uh, philosophers, of course. But and you're using terminology they recognise phrases. Terms. But as soon as they hear it, a whole body of body of knowledge, um, and and scholarship comes to mind, and so that's what they're understanding you through. And of course, you rely on that. But to as much as possible, I'm trying to keep the doors open to these various areas to be able to talk to each other. Um, and that's really, yeah. You know, I mean, with you know, that so that's uh, what I'm doing in this book. I'm I'm really interested in solving certain problems in a way that's got practical application. Um, uh, I'd really like, for example, to see artists and philosophers talking together more, but that's really difficult because you've got to get some common terminology.
0: Um, well, what are you going you- so-
1: Yeah, so go ahead. No, so um, uh, but going back to your original question, how do I see my – I mean, I, I know what you're, you're referring to the fact that I, I'm always talking about uh, the way we perceive things is dependent on what sort of concepts we have, how we're able, you know, what sort of things we're able to notice, the sort of things we see significant, sort of configurations we give to what we see. Um, yes, that's completely compatible with uh, Kendall Walton's thesis.
0: One of the things you do go into uh, more deeply, um, and this is you know, actually back in, back in chapter two is um, uh, what you called our, our capacity for um, reading intention and order, actually a, a, you call it a hardwired capacity um, to find meaning um, and to construct narratives. Um, and you tie this with, um, with some contemporary work in, in philosophy of perception, uh, both Susanna Siegel's work um, in visual perception uh, and uh, Casey o 'Callaghan, I think um, his work in uh, in sound and acoustic reception, um, yeah. so maybe you could say say a word about what's what 's going on in that chapter
1: yeah that 's putting in a, putting in contemporary terms a problem that Collingwood um, and Benedetto croce tried to solve uh, to address, and that 's the idea that we can both be standing, looking in the same direction, but we're not actually necessarily perceiving the same thing. So, an, an art is just so interesting in this respect that the value and meaning we attribute to artworks is underdetermined in the perceptual object it would seem, um, because you can have two people looking at the same work, and one people is one person is seeing so much in it, and the other person's just saying, "Well, look, it's a bit of paint pushed around a canvas." I mean, what are you looking at? What are you seeing? You know. Um, So it's the possibility that uh, the way we perceive things is so beholden to the, you know, background experience, knowledge, and so on and so forth. In the art case, it's even more than that, of course, because you're considering artistic intentions and all kinds of things about you know what you might know about the artwork's previous work and so on. Um, Now, what I do in that chapter is I start from just some some sort of ground up about perception in order and the fact that as soon as we see anything. that looks like it's got any sort of logic in it. We we read it as as to do with human intention. We read it along those lines, and I mean that's not such a that's not a controversial um, thesis at all, of course. And we read narrative, some sort of narrative into it to sort of understand why it's there and how we're supposed to behave toward it, whether we should avoid it or go up to it or you know appreciate it or use it in some way or whatever. In order to get this idea. Um, off the ground and, and sort of just flesh it out i refer to um uh, susanna Sagal's which content uh, which content view mm-hmm. of perception um, which is just, which is actually the you know very very interesting uh, she's talking about the way um you know we read causes into things um and she gives you know the example of phenomenal contrast i mean that's how we that's how we can um be aware that we're reading thing reading causes anything so she has the example of the cat i think that's her example the cat on the, the hammock so that we could see it as three separate things so that you have a hammock you have a cat and there's a floor underneath the hammock and then when the cat's on the hammock, the hammock is closer to the floor, so the distance of the hammock from the floor is, is closer. But we don't see those things as separate individual events. We read it into a unified whole. I think by saying you know just automatically you know seeing it as the cat jumping on the on the hammock and, and its weight causing the hammock to be closer to the ground. She sets it out a lot more eloquently than I did, elegantly than I did then. I'm um, going to say, um, and so her but her thesis is that it's. It's makes, it has more explanatory power to think of it not as, not as us attributing causes to, you know, the cat causing the hammock to sink down, but it's actually um, the, the driving force there is looking for unified explanations, looking for unity in events. So rather than seeing things as separate events, we need to unify them. Into some sort of coherent whole, and then she goes on to the you know, explanatory power of that, and so then of course that's just a nice, rich kind of way of thinking of it for me, because then that just that just um, can be then drawn upon to explain the whole impulse behind the way we read meaning in art and what drives that. So that's what I'm trying to do in that um, second chapter: just get off the ground why it is that art engages us at all and how it engages us. Um, one of the example art examples I use, the art example I use actually in that chapter is the artwork of Daniel von Sturmer, which is particularly interesting in that to use in that chapter because his artwork seems to be all about the various ways objects can be related to each other through various kinds of causes that we that we seem to read into various relationships. Um, and so I sort of discuss his work. Relating it to that and and drawing that out, um, so I'm using his his artwork to draw out the way we, you know, just the extent to which the um, the scene that we perceive is actually underdetermining the visual stimulus,
0: right? Or the the stimulus underdetermines what we
1: see. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. yeah yes. Um. Well, let me let me um move forward a little bit to uh to chapter 4 which uh, sorry chapter 5 which is um talking morals um um to get more into the the pragmatic or the pragmatist um aesthetic theories and then um and kant's what you call you know kant's pragmatist legacy since that's the subtitle of the of the book um and and there you also call kant scholars to task for for ignoring the significance of Of his aesthetics uh, for his moral theory, Um, so maybe you can um, say a bit more what's what's going on in that chapter, connecting the um, pragmatists um, and
1: Kant. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Uh, Gee whiz, where do I start now? Which chapter? This was
0: five. I mean, you know, a lot of these issues are are they kind of. you know, go flow through yeah, the yeah. book, so it's hard to say yeah. just this chapter because they they come up all over.
1: Yeah, yeah, they do. Um. Okay. Uh, I think, I think that there's a case to be made to treat Kant's Critique of Judgment as a contribution to his moral theory. I mean, I think that's what it is actually. Um. The. The. Aesthetic, I mean, the, the um, principle of um, aesthetic judgment being universal is the a priori principle. So this is what we take ourselves to be doing when we make an aesthetic judgment. We take ourselves to be getting at something that is objectively true. Um, in the moral case, uh, the moral judgment, um, when we make moral judgment, we take ourselves to be getting at something that is not to do with our own subjectivity. Or even something to do local to our culture, we take ourselves to be getting at something else. Um, now, that's quite consistent, though, with where Kant really sets this up. You know, the moral law in its um, in its absoluteness. Um, he sets it up and refers to it as sublime, as awe-inspiring. So, our response to this. Is um, such that 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 in itself is motivational, but that's quite compatible with with uh, an exploration and um, an analysis of a moral moral judgment as being rule governed. I mean, he does a similar thing with aesthetic judgment in that aesthetic judgment is rule governed, um, but it's a, a rule it's a rule that cannot be stated, and it's universal because that's what we take ourselves to be doing. But that's quite compatible with us disagreeing and. Um, you know, struggling to, to to arrive at common, you know, common grounds and so on. Um, the whole dynamics of our communication on these issues is that um, th- we take ourselves to be judging from a perspective that is not personal. So.
0: Um, well, there's, I mean, there's, there's a couple, one of the, one of the things about Kant's aesthetics is this idea of, of free play Right of the imagination, and that's supposed to be quite, uh, you know, an element that it'll. I mean, it's sort of mysterious what exactly he means by by free play of the imagination. But there's there's certainly a sense in which it seems to be that there's there are two different sorts of of uh, of processes going on when we're doing an aesthetic, when we're engaging in aesthetic judgment, as opposed to. Moral judgments and and you know reason and the whole idea that moral judgment depends on reason and and uh, um, and the moral law and, and and none of none of that really appears in the aesthetics. So um, so so I was I was a little bit I was a little bit curious about you know exactly what sort of of contribution you saw the the aesthetics. Um, giving to the to the moral theory, given given that from what I know of of each of them, they they seem to be very different. They may, they may share some aspects, but I, it seems to me that maybe it's just a difference in, in emphasis. But there seems to be certain elements in in aesthetics that he explicitly um, says are are not are are distinct from. Um, the sorts of reasoning that goes on in in a moral judgment,
1: the free play um, of the the imagination and understanding, the way Kant puts that, mm. is is then fleshed out in the deduction of pure aesthetic judgments in terms of the aesthetic ideas, which is introduced rather late, um, you know, within the sixty sections of the Critique of Aesthetic Judgment. Um, it's up around in, in the 40s, section 40s. Mm. Um, aesthetic ideas are rational ideas seen through a personal lens, um, more or less. So that rational ideas are going to be ideas for which there is no evidence in nature. So, you know, put, put sort of just um, rather crudely, ideas of uh, immortality, freedom, God, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, Whatever your background, metaphysical or religious commitments are, will determine what kind of ideas are thrown up. But they're all ideas to do with some sort of continuity, some sort of uh, idea of us belonging to something more than just our own little solipsistic um, bubbles. We're a part of something else, something beyond the self, something that's continuing, um, something that that inspires hope, something that's rather compelling in that respect. And then in in ascetic judgment, because... Kant's way of putting it, where he's trying to ground how this judgment is possible, so he's coming up with what's actually going on in his architecture of the mind, Um, because uh, we—it's as though we suspend the normal way we engage you know, day-to-day where we're looking at objects in terms of the way they function for us and we're slotting them into our literal discursive propositions and our ways of reasoning and so on. And then something about certain scenes he uses nature as his, you know, example, his, his paradigm example. Um, something about certain aspects of the world that we perceive engage these processes in a way that, of course, we recognise what we see in some respect. I mean, we, there's not no way we... We don't apply concepts. I mean, even when we come upon a unrecognisable object, that's still a concept we have of that thing. So there's always concepts involved. But it's as though we're engaging in the object where we're suspending that. It's the sort of thing where somebody says to you, what are you doing? You say, I'm not doing anything. I'm just enjoying the view. So it's it's, uh, in his way of thinking that once that kind of literal sort of means end Way of that purpose, purposeful nature of our cognition is is loose, le, loosened a little bit. Mm-hmm. We engage in its purposiveness. The fact that it's we enjoy the fact that our that our way of being in the world, the way the way we respond to the world, is is in this purposive way. That's really what we're enjoying um, in in that moment, and it's it's very it's very um, Affirming, you know, it's a very sort of affirming moment. Not about, not just about us, but about the whole our whole community and the way we're related to the world and the way the world seems in this moment to be perfectly fitted to the sort of creatures that we are. Um, but in that moment, the mind throws up this wealth of material that's associated with the concept that was that was uh, involved in our initial recognition of whatever it is we're looking at, and this wealth of material comes up. And the material is in sort of the ballpark of rational ideas only in in this moment we experience it through our personal own personal lens. so the memories will be of our own experience um, that are associated with ideas of continuity being a part of something greater than ourselves or something about um you know the the incredible diversity of nature or something um, so that's the that's the free play. Of, you know, the free play of aesthetic judgment, but it's actually rather, it's rather um, purpose purposive, isn't it? I mean, it's not just sort of it's it's very different from um, daydreaming. I was just going to say that, yeah, and very different from using something as a springboard to your personal reverie. It's it's not that kind of thing, and and it is it that that has been confused in the literature quite a bit, Um, less so recently, I must say. But in the past, I've read accounts that seem to make no distinction between daydreaming and the, the free play of the faculties. And, and that's that's really, I, I think, that's getting Kant very wrong. Um, hmm. um, so, so yeah, so I mean, you can see that purposiveness is uh, is a way of conceiving of ourselves that is conducive to what Kant would call, Kant would call our moral vocation. You see, so it's not quite so far, far removed from the moral that, that it would would be if you thought of it as just daydreaming so um
0: we're we're running close to time um let me let me ask um if we would i feel I would be remiss if I didn't ask about um Bear Scout because um uh that work you know connects directly also you know aesthetic valuing with with moral valuing um mm-hmm um and so one of the things that occurred to me was whether you thought that uh, well how how do you see the connection between between Gauts arguments and and your view between on the connection between ethics and morals and uh, sorry oh, ethics and aesthetics yeah,
1: yeah. um they they're compatible it's just that i'm focusing i'm focusing on on a different you know aspect of the of the literature, and I'm trying to bring it into a slightly different realm. Um, yeah, let me see. Um, it's certainly true that we respond, as I said earlier, we're responding to the attitude that the artist is taking to their topic. Um, well, do you? And, sure, go ahead. Yeah, um, you know when I mean I know that in the when there is uh, disputes about art. Certain people, I mean, this has happened, you know, in court cases and so on where people have said that, oh, I, oh, I know, yeah, they, um, they've come up with a certain interpretation of what artistic autonomy is um, based on a sort of formalism that says that you look at the form and something about this form is significant to the extent that whatever morals or, or whatever attitude to people or whatever is shown in the work is irrelevant. I mean, th- that is just incoherent. <laughs> For one thing, you, you don't appreciate the form of something in its entirety unless you know what you're looking at. And what you're looking at is, in the case of an artifact made by another human being, is something about their attitude to what they've done. Um, you know, even if you are just looking at fretwork or something and, and appreciating it, you're, you're indirectly appreciating the fact that a human being has taken the time to do this. And they've had a certain purposiveness that they've ex- they've expressed in the work, and that's just so wonderful to to recognise. Um, some of the arguments that have been put forward for formalism are just sort of incoherent. I, I'm a formalist in certain respects, but some of the the, the positions that are claimed to be formalist, I don't recognise as formalism. I just re- recognise them as rather strange, um, a strange way of uh, I don't know. Defending, I think, almost like a—it's all. It's almost like a cultish kind of approach of fetishism about certain certain objects, which I, I just don't find helpful at all. The whole idea of aesthetic autonomy is about the fact that aesthetic judgment is not a conclusion to an argument. Now, there's a really nice paper by Robert Hopkins that sets this out really nicely, but it's not a conclusion to an argument. Um, it's not something where you can exercise explicit, direct inference. Um, nonetheless, it's rational. It can be con- conducted in rational ways, and that's what's so interesting about it, and this is why I use the idea of modelling. The idea um, because of this is, you know, well, a, bit, a part of this is that it has to have a subjective element because, you know, you you internalise these things and represent them. I mean, that's part of the modelling. The autonomy is that it can't be legislated from outside. It can't. It's not a matter of just following somebody else's principles or deferring to authority. So that sense of autonomy is analogous to Kant's idea of moral autonomy. It has to be something that that you know. For, for moral autonomy, it has to be you exercising reason. In the case of um, aesthetic autonomy, it's you finding those principles within your own representations. That's what aesthetic autonomy is. Now that doesn't. Mean that considering um, the concept of the human being that might be celebrated in a work of art, that somehow is irrelevant to the object seen as art. I, I don't see that. I can't see how that could be. So once again, this is another one of those concepts that people have developed and thought and, and argue. Well, they haven't argued this sort of claim that it's a Kantian concept, aesthetic autonomy, and so so that means art's got nothing to do with morality. Well. I mean that doesn't fall. I mean, you know, that's just a completely mis- misunderstanding of what a snake autonomy means. And you know, I mean, it's, it's just so easy to defend that, even historically, through the various. And this is what I do. I mean, in, in the book, the way I draw upon various ph- uh, philosophers after Kant who are working in a you know, pragmatist vein—that's part of the way of, the, of of backing my interpretation of Kant's Critique of Judgment, because I'm looking back to it. Through these ways of thinking about things, so I discuss Putnam, Habermas, uh, Stanley Cavell, mm-hmm. um, and so on, and and I u- use their interpretations to look back to the CJ to sort of flesh that out because that's part. You know, this is this is what you're dealing with. You're dealing with in a, in quite a lot of the the um, discussions. These terms are like aesthetic autonomy and art. Oh, Disinterested pleasure, I could start on that. Oh, yes. But it's so misrepresent you know, it's a complete misrepresentation of the way Kant was using the terms. Um and so, you know, you have to sort of start by where you know, where do you start with that? You have to you have to go back and 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 establish how you're using these terms before you even start having any kind of discussion. And so part of doing that is to f- flesh out how to think about these things um through looking at the way people after Kant have been influenced by the critique of judgment and the way it's influenced them. And these are not theories that are, that are, uh, that are um, you know, explicitly aesthetic theories, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, but nonetheless uh, to my way of thinking they are compl- you know, relevant to understanding what aesthetic judgment is.
0: So where where do you go from here? I mean, we're we're sort of out of time, and I I like to you you mentioned before that you plan to do something further. I think in the communication or language communicability issue. But um, what's your next? Are you working on a, a follow up book or articles? What's what's what are you doing now?
1: Yeah, uh, I have. I always have quite a lot of um, strands <sighs> underway. But they all they they're all sort of circling around um, the same sort of issues and problems um it's I, I i wait you know I'm waiting to hear more about responses to this book and discussions and so on about this book and I have certain things planned for next year um, um, an author meets critic session at the American Society of aesthetics I hope to, I'm planning I'm in the process of planning um but at the moment what I'm working on and what I think this is heading, taking me towards, certainly what I had in mind when I was writing the book, is this idea of the the possibility of community among um, diverse cultural commitments. That's that's what's that's what I find really um, quite compelling, you know, that idea at the moment. And that's really where, where this is sort of heading at the moment, the sort of stuff that I'm working on and reading and writing on at the moment.
0: Well, I look. I look forward to to reading that, um, at least some of that work. Um, but we're we're out of time for now, so I have to say goodbye. <laughs>
1: okay, thanks very um, so much so for having me on the show. Thank you Karen. for a
0: wonderful discussion. You've been listening to an interview with Jennifer McMahon, associate professor of philosophy at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. We've been talking about her new book, Art and Ethics in a Material World, Kant's Pragmatist Legacy, which is just out from Routledge. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.